Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. It's not often that federal rulemaking draws attention from a wide audience, but when the Department of Health and Human Services implemented the Affordable Care Act 10 years ago, it issued a rule requiring employers to cover contraceptives. And that little rule, the HHS contraceptive mandate, drew widespread condemnation from many people of faith. In many ways, the mandate was the impetus for the formation of our own USCCB ad hoc committee for religious liberty and the fortnight for freedom, which then became the committee for religious liberty and religious freedom week. Over the years, we've watched as the little sisters of the poor have fought the mandate at the Supreme Court. This rule is what first got some people interested in religious freedom in the first place. We may be poised for more rulemaking that captures that kind of widespread attention. Here at the conference, policy experts from several offices have been anticipating the rollout of not one, but seven rules across different agencies that will have negative effects on life and liberty. To help us understand these regulations, we are joined by our colleague, Dan Balzerak. Dan is Assistant General Counsel and Director of Religious Liberty at the USCCB, so that makes him my boss. Uh-oh, look out. <laughs> Prior to joining the USCCB, he served at the Department of Health and Human Services. He also worked for the Archdiocese of Washington during the HHS mandate struggles, so he brings a great deal of experience to these kinds of issues. Dan, thanks for talking with us. Uh, thank you, Aaron. thanks for having me, and uh, no need to butter me up. <laughs> So I want to start off with talking about something really basic. Um, it may seem boring to an experienced attorney like you, but for many of us, you know, like I said, rulemaking is not something that gets a lot of widespread attention. And I think partly it's not very well understood by the general public. We're all fairly familiar with debates about bills and bills becoming laws and that sort of thing. But what is going on then when laws become rules? What That seems like another step that I don't know that I was very familiar with it until I became interested in these sorts of issues. So just fill us in. Sure. Uh, and I think the, the process of federal agencies making rules or regulations, which is sort of the terms are used more or less interchangeably, is underappreciated uh, in terms of its impact on public debate, political debate about, you know, uh, such and such administration is doing X, Y, Z, and we think that's bad or that's good. A, a lot of the time, what you're talking about when you have those conversations is regulations or rules. And I think it's probably also underappreciated the, the extent to which regulations govern our lives. Uh, one of my favorite Twitter accounts is called a crime a day. And it's just about how everything you can think of is a crime, uh, like wearing orange pants in the Atchafalaya basin after Labor Day or something. And, and the thing that makes it a crime is a regulation more than a statute. Um, so when, when a federal agency makes a rule what it's doing is exercising its authority to interpret and implement statutes. So Congress, you know, they, they brush up as much as they can on whatever the subject matter is of, of the law they're making. But a lot of the 
the things they're trying to do are very technical, you know, methane regulation, uh, the, these very, very complicated issues. And they say, you know, we can only take this so far. You, the federal agency, we delegate to you the authority to, um, to sort of fill in the gaps in this statute. Um, and they can do that explicitly. The, the, the law itself will say, we hereby delegate to the Department of Health and Human Services the authority to issue regulations, or sometimes it's implicit. Um, so just if the law has some ambiguity or gap in it, the federal agency will sort of on its own accord, pick up the ball and fill that gap in or, or sort of flesh out exactly how the law is supposed to work. So that's what's happening um, with these, these regulations we're worried about. Federal agencies are taking parts of the Affordable Care Act, parts of various federal non-discrimination laws and saying, well, here's what that really means in, in more precise terms. So Dan, so, but when you're talking about, I mean, one of my, one, my husband's favorite sayings is personnel is policy, right? So, I mean, is it, is this very much, you know, all of these um, federal agencies, right? Can they, they can be very much determined by who is in charge at the federal level. Is that the case, right? I mean, I understand there are, there are political appointees in federal agencies, but then there are also people who, who work there, who are, who are not appointed, who, who stay on through no matter what the change in the administration at the, um, you know, at the, who's president, right? So I guess my question is, um, are all of these agencies, you know, health and human services, um, housing and urban uh, education, Department of Education, I mean, are they all at the mercy of all these regulations and, and at the mercy of who is, is president? Or, I mean, how does that, how does that work? In a sense, yes. And of all of the seven different regulations we're concerned about, uh, not a single one is a brand new exercise. All seven of them are sort of the new version of a rule that was made during the previous administration. And I think with maybe the exception of one, each of those were, was a new version of uh, a regulation made under the administration before that. So there's this game of ping pong um, that takes place as administrations change. And right, the federal agencies directed by the political appointees who run them, you know, take, take the statute that's at the basis of the, the regulation and interpret it. You know, th there are sort of boundaries on, on either side. Um, you know, we can interpret this as much as possible to be in line with the policy priorities of the Demo uh, Democratic administration, or as much as possible to be in line with the policy priorities of a Republican administration. And that's based on you know, real or perceived ambiguity in the statute. Um, and those sorts of changes back and forth are directed in large part by changes in, in personnel. Um, sometimes there are underlying legal changes that that cause the or, or that contribute to the the shift um i think we'll get into it a bit but bostock the the supreme court's ruling in in the bostock case is a big one for 
for our purposes here. So one more follow-up question. Okay, so you use the word statutes. So what's the difference between a statute and a <laughs> regulation? All right, so <laughs> statute, um, a statute is a bill that was passed. It is a- um, Got it, okay. Part of the US code, the, the statutory code. Law, law and statute get used um, to mean the same thing a lot, but statute and regulation, the distinction between those is sort of a, the, the precise way to think about the, the law in, in broad terms. This is why there are so many attorneys in, in Washington, <laughs> D.C., because they're all interpreting statutes and all of these things. Well, th well thank our, our, our founding fathers and, and successive uh, Supreme Court uh, justices for uh, setting up and expanding the administrative state and ensuring me job security. <laughs> well, I know we often talk about our kids here at the office. You should make like a schoolhouse rock style video about, you know, for children. Because isn't it, wasn't it schoolhouse rock is that cartoon where where they have like the bill turning into a law, but now you need to like run it through all the regulatory agencies yes. and stuff. <laughs> I feel like kids would really be into the Administrative Procedure Act. Yeah, oh, yeah. you think so? Uh, <laughs> Make it fun oh, for the children. Um, <laughs> then it won't seem, because it does seem sort of mysterious, I think, to a lot of people. There's something that seems more public about what happens, rightly or wrongly, seems more public what happens in Congress, whereas this part of it all seems like what's going on now, you know? So Yeah, I, yeah. I pretty much still have no idea what you're talking about. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but no, I mean, it's really, it seems to me like what you said about, you know, Congress just kind of passes it over because they, I mean, there's so much that goes on. You, what you said earlier, that really hit home about, you really have no idea about how much, what happens inside the beltway affects our lives. And I don't, I don't think most people realize that. I mean, this is, I mean, shining a light on this is so important. So Let's get into it. I want to know what these seven regulations yeah. are. Seven regulations anticipated. We probably don't want to go too in depth on every single one, but can you just give us kind of a little thumbnail sketch of, of each one real quick? Like, where is it coming from? What's it going to, what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's very easy to get real deep in the weeds super quick on this so give me like a secret hand signal if, if I, i'm doing that <laughs> um all right so it's it's easiest for me to remember these if i just go uh, agency by agency so there are four coming out of the u.s department of health and human services one is the contraceptive mandate like you mentioned earlier there are uh, an anticipated round of revisions to the existing contraceptive mandate regulation, specifically the parts of it that provide exemptions for uh, religious objections and moral objections to having to provide contraceptives in your, your health plan if you're an employer. So the administration through HHS is, it intends to revise those and, and um, presumably to narrow them or eliminate them but we don't quite know yet what form that will take. The next is uh, the HHS grants rule. 
that's kind of a misnomer because it applies to more than just grants. Basically, it's a, a provision buried deep within this mammoth part of, of the HHS's regulations that sets out the terms and conditions of all sort of federal awards and federal funds that HHS disperses. And it's a provision enacted in the previous administration that um, prohibits recipients of those funds or awards from discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Well, sorry, I shouldn't have said the previous administration. The administration before that put this, this non-discrimination piece in, Trump administration took it out, and now the current administration thinking about possibly putting it back in. Um, so that's gonna affect mostly social service providers, foster care, adoption, things like that. Uh, next is the conscience rule. Um, so this is another game of ping pong. Bush administration issued a, this regulation called the conscience rule, implementing and providing enforcement mechanisms. So sort of ways to make sure that it can enforce these statutes that protect conscience rights in healthcare. So if you're a provider who doesn't want to participate in abortion, there is a statute, a federal statute that says you can't be discriminated against because you don't want to participate in abortion. The Obama administration pared that back, that regulation to just like one sentence, literally one sentence. Trump administration expanded it beyond what the Bush administration did. And now HHS is proposing to rescind, to get rid of the Trump administration rule. So you know, back and forth. Last and, and probably the biggest out of HHS is what's called the Section 1557 rule. Section 1557 refers to a, a section in the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare as it's, it's often known. And that section is the non-discrimination section. It says, you know, programs, participants in the Affordable Care Act regime, architecture, cannot discriminate on the following bases. And the one that's really at issue is sex discrimination. The administration, HHS, is expected to uh, reinstitute a previously um, instituted interpretation, which is that sex discrimination means uh, gender identity discrimination too, with the, the, the effect that if you are a healthcare provider, a professional who for whom gender transition procedures would be within your scope of practice. So say, say you're a, a plastic surgeon who does double mastectomies. Those, that sort of procedure can be done for gender transition purposes too. Therefore, you're required to perform it for those purposes. It also has, um, just like the contraceptive mandate governs uh, employer health plans, the section 1557 regulation would require coverage of gender transition procedures in employer health plans. Um, not necessarily every employer, but lots of them. Um, there's a big question mark over whether Section 1557 is gonna say anything about abortion, whether it's going to institute uh, similar requirements about abortion. Um, that would really make, make the thing into a different animal um, and everyone's watching very closely to see what will happen with that. Question on that one. Sure. Would that include hormone hormone treatment for children yes. who have gender dysphoria? Yes. Okay. So, so if you are the type of 
doctor who prescribes hormone treatments for growth disorders, then you would be required to you know, provide them for gender dysphoria as well. And failing to do so would be considered gender identity discrimination. I mean, just a comment on that. It, it really is striking. What you're saying is that basically if, if you do a cer- certain procedures like mastectomies for cancer treatment, then you also then have to do those same procedures to treat somebody who presents with gender dysphoria. That's a, is that right? Basically, is that what I'm? Yeah. I mean, because that, that's sort of bizarre. Even if you take away the culture war gender stuff about it to, to say, if you do this for one thing, that means you have to do it for the other thing. It's kind of a weird workaround to say that you have to then you have to do this thing. Does that kind of make sense? I mean, it's it seems to me like it's sort of a strange thing to get that involved in how physicians do their work. Right. So there's a thread here that doesn't really have anything to do with religion or moral concerns about uh, gender transition procedures. You know, you could just be a doctor who thinks that they're not effective. And, you know, you provide double mastectomies for, for cancer patients because you understand the evidence to show that they help fight cancer. And maybe you read the evidence on, on their utility for gender transition or gender dysphoria differently, not out of a religious perspective, but just a, a medical scientific perspective. So it does get very far down into the decision-making of, of individual physicians mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. All right. So I've done four. Next two are out of the Department of Education. One is Title IX. So Title IX is a federal non-discrimination statute that prohibits sex discrimination in education, specifically in education programs and activities that get federal funding somehow. It's going to capture essentially every university, public schools, but also, to some extent, private schools as well, if the school in question happens to participate in some sort of federal financial assistance program. And those these days are very common, um, the, mm-hmm. the programs themselves. And that, as with Section 1557, the, the move expected there, essentially all but certain, is that the Department of Education will say sex discrimination means sexual orientation and gender identity. And, you know, therefore, it's sort of the the, the litany that we've become familiar with through the, the culture war issues, you know, a boy who identifies as a girl needs to be permitted access to the girl's locker room, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The other one out of the Department of Education is a bit of an odd duck. It's called the Religious Liberty and Free Inquiry Rule. It's, it's sort of a mishmash of different provisions that, that have to do with freedom on, on college campuses. The main The main one um, that that has captured people's attention is a provision governing the freedom of student faith groups to select their own leaders. There was a Supreme Court Court case about this a while back where basically a student group, a Christian student group said, well, our leaders need to accept church teaching on um, homosexuality. And the school said, well, that's discriminatory. Um, you can't impose that requirement on your leaders. So this this is a regulation from the Trump administration that gives student organizations that space to say, you know, our leaders need to be 
uh, need to embrace our faith, this regulation is expected to roll that protection back. But just real quick, that's not only about sexual orientation, gender identity stuff, right? That right like right. that, like a, a religious group, theoretically, if say, if it was a small religion on a campus and all the, and like an agnostic group could stage a hostile takeover, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that I, we don't know that that's something like that's happened, but that's not out of the realm of possible, or not even just, not even just religion. I mean, uh, you know, all of the, the meat eaters could join people for the ethical treatment of animals. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, well, it, it has, you know, sort of mundane practical effects too. you know, so say you had a, an Orthodox Jewish student organization and uh, it's, it's leader really loved someone ran for to be the leader of the organization who chose to serve ribs, you know, baby back ribs at every student gathering, you know, mm -hmm their their acceptance of you know jewish teachings about or, or sorry uh, a muslim group their acceptance of of that teaching is part of what it means to be an exemplar of their faith so yeah it it, it messes with the identity the student group's identity uh, ability to adhere to their their chosen identity mm -hmm. So Dan, can I go back to the, the one you mentioned, the first one you mentioned at the um, Department of Education, you mentioned that it would not, it seems like you said it would not extend to private schools that do not receive federal funding. I'm kind of surprised at that, that it doesn't go that far. Yeah. So there, this is, this goes back to um, the authority that the federal government has to regulate you know, our, our private lives. There are, there are different ways it can do that. You know, the Commerce Clause is a you know, provision in the Constitution saying that Congress can regulate interstate commerce, and that's been very broadly construed. So if something has, you know, even the most incidental effect on its interstate commerce, Congress can pass a law regulating it, governing it. Another main one, which is most often at issue in these, these regulations, is the spending clause. So Congress and uh, federal agencies implementing statutes that Congress passes can attach conditions on federal funding. So Title IX is an exercise of, uh, Title IX is the statute um, that the Department of Education rule is working with. Title IX is an exercise of the spending clause power. So it doesn't go further than the federal dollars do. All right, right. so I think, I oh, think we're- more. Oh, yeah, I don't oh, think yeah. we all seven. We still one got more. Yeah, we got one more. So the very last is what's called the Equal Treatment for Faith-Based Organizations Rule. It's, it's a joint rulemaking. So there are, I think, nine different federal agencies involved, and they're going to, to issue essentially identical regulations governing their own operations, their own funding. Um, it's being led by the Department of Justice. And the 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 focus of that rule is how, how far can faith-based organizations that receive federal funding to provide social services, especially, how far can they go in maintaining their religious character and their religious exercise in the, the conduct of these programs? So if you have a faith-based homeless shelter that receives money from housing and ur urban development, you know, can they have a cross on the wall? Can they 
offer worship services in, in the home? Can they make those part of the programs that they provide for, for people who stay there? Uh, things like that. So that's, I think that's seven. So I think, I think somebody who listens to this, the number one thing they're going to wonder is, how is it going to affect my life? And in fact, you mentioned at the very beginning that the rules, the rulemaking is the thing that really can, can affect us the most. So yeah, how is this, what, what is this going to, how is this going to affect me? I guess we should say that this hasn't happened yet. This is all right. We anticipate it happening. And so we don't know for sure how it's going to, how things are going to pan out, but let's just assume that what we expect to happen does happen. What's it, what difference does it, is it going to make to me? Mm-hmm. So I think the three to talk about three to focus on in that respect are section 1557 and the conscience rule, which are sort of a, a one, two punch in a way and title nine from the department of education. So section 1557 and the conscience rule, uh, I, I call them a one, two punch because 1557 is going to, we expect it to impose requirements on healthcare providers to perform procedures. And the conscience rule, the the proposed rescission of the conscience rule is expected to remove protections for healthcare providers who who don't want to perform those procedures. So it is, you know, a good question. Well, if you're not a a doctor or a nurse or whatever, does that really make a difference for you? And I, I think it does. A lot of people want doctors, want, want their healthcare providers to share their, their religious or their moral views. Um, so if you're a pregnant woman looking for an OB-GYN, you'd rather not see an OB-GYN who performs abortions. Or if you are a, you know, a parent with a, a teenager, um, you might like to avoid a pediatrician who's inclined to respond to your child's gender dysphoria by recommending gender transition, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. hormone treatments, uh, and eventually um, some sort of surgical intervention as, as an option. So I I think there's this downstream, but, but real effect on the the sort of profile of our, our healthcare workforce. If you don't, if you make the healthcare profession one where only people who endorse these sorts of procedures are, are, are really eligible, then that's the kind of services you're going to get as a patient, mm-hmm. the kind of services you're going to be offered. In Title IX, lots of people have kids. Lots of people send their kids to public school and, and lots, of, lots of kids go to, go to college. So Title IX um, will sort of govern how schools treat or approach these issues of, of gender and sexuality. So, you know, if you are, if you, if you send your kid to public school and you don't uh, want them to share a locker room or a bathroom with uh, someone of the, the opposite sex, or if you just, you know, don't want the environment, the, the sort of um, curriculum and, and atmosphere of, of the school to be one that sort of promotes and celebrates the sort of gender identity ideology, then Title IX should be of concern. Um, and it is, is, of course, especially concerning to the extent that it reaches private religious schools where, where their ability to faithfully live out 
their their teachings, their faith on on these matters would, would be affected. So those I think those are the two main ways that that you that you should care about this as just an ordinary citizen. Mm-hmm. So, but what about number seven? So my understanding is that, that, I mean, I'm still trying to go back to like what it was that you said that the last one did. And that you said that that was led by the Department of Justice, but it's, there's nine agencies involved. And to me, I mean, that one seems hugely impactful because you're talking about, I think possibly I think you're talking about possibly a huge economic impact, right? Could really change the character where we're where no longer can groups receive federal funding. Like we're going to be support, or if we want to maintain the authentic Catholic flavor of certain organizations or groups or whatever, then we're going to have to support them with our own dollars. Am I understanding that last one correctly? Yeah. Yes and no. I okay. Um, the reason. I would not put that sort of at the top of our list of concerns, although certainly we're concerned about it, is that the the space for movement from from one administration to the other on this rule is relatively small. Um, There are still sort of baseline protections for faith-based groups that get get federal money in terms of being able to call themselves Catholic. Mainly the, the impact is on the beneficiaries of these programs. One of the real bones of contention is if you are a homeless person seeking shelter at a faith, faith-run charity, can you ask them to send you somewhere else because you don't like the fact that they, are, that they are Catholic or that they are Baptist or whatever? One interpretation of, of the law that, that these the agencies have taken is yes, faith-based organizations must sort of, they bear a special burden to help beneficiaries avoid them, is sort of the idea. I, I think that that is hard to justify because you might be a religious homeless person who really wants a religious uh, shelter. And, but, but there's no equivalent requirement on a secular shelter to refer you to a religious shelter. So that's the sort of thing that that we that we're talking about in the the equal treatment rules the the fact that there are nine different agencies involved it might be seven might be nine i can't remember um reflects the fact that each individual agency is in charge for in charge of implementing its own governing its own operations so for title nine the rule that's coming out is just out of the department of education but there are like a dozen different Title IX regulations, different in the sense that they are HHS's Title IX regulation and Housing and Urban Development's Title IX regulation and et cetera, et cetera. But they are, they are sort of carbon copies of each other as much as they can be. So DOJ, Department of Justice, has a, a special sort of role in, in ensuring uniformity across the federal agencies in terms of how they implement and interpret non-discrimination statutes. I think that that point about the medical profession, I mean, essentially, you know, people who share my convictions being unwelcome in the medical profession, that is really hits home for me just because 
you're you're uniquely vulnerable when you go visit a physician you know and so the idea that you're that it would be almost impossible to see physicians who understand your way of life in some way and some of those kinds of decisions that affect your health it, it is something that we we all have to go to the doctor sometimes you know so even if mm -hmm. it's an institution that our lives intersect with or we live a lot of our lives in the in the institution of hospitals and healthcare and that sort of thing and so the idea that faith would really be or our religion and our convictions about some of these life matters would be sort of excluded it would it would have an effect on a lot of us uh, so i think that that's helpful to yeah. point that out yeah and so lead us not into temptation right so if you have if you have terminal cancer and you're you're seeing your your oncologist you know your uh, uh, palliative care specialist and you know it's a temptation you're facing down this 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 long and painful death it's a, a temptation to wish to be over um you know to for there to be a quick way out one of the conscience statutes one of the, the statutes implemented by the the trump administration conscience rule is a protection for um for objections to assisted suicide so you know if you're a you would likely hope if you're a, a practicing catholic in that that situation to not have your doctor suggest to you that maybe you should think about mm -hmm. assisted suicide. Mm -hmm. um, so these are these are the sorts of of impacts that that could end up falling on you and me, the the average citizen. Mm -hmm. Well, we have with just the the few minutes that we have left, um, I want to talk about what we're doing to deal with it. So so first, you know, what is what is the bishops conference? doing about all of this how are we are we we're fighting right we're tell us tell us <laughs> we're what always fighting defense yeah. a lot so <laughs> i guess that's an appropriate occasion to to note the sort of status or, or posture of of the rulemaking projects that's going on so all of these rules we're talking about are planned they we expect them to be released soon what will get released soon is what's called a proposed rule. So it's not effective immediately, usually not. Um, and, and we expect all of these to be proposed rules, not effective immediately. And then at that point, there is a period for public comment on the proposal. And then usually sometime like nine months or a year later, the agency will finalize the rule and then it will become effective. That's the, the point at which people must comply. So what we're looking at right now is anticipation of the release of proposed rules. So what we're doing right now, you know, we don't have text of any proposed rule to, to look at and respond to. So we're trying to generally raise the awareness that these things are coming down the pike to prepare people to engage with the federal government on, on these proposals. We plan on assisting people in, in, in submitting these public comments to, to the federal agencies. And I, I used to work at HHS in the Office for Civil Rights, and I, I, I did rulemaking projects there. And I have to say, it's sort of a magical little moment in governing ostensibly sort of for, for and by the people. Um, because if you submit a public comment, Sally Smith from you know, Topeka can write a public comment to HHS on 
the conscience rule or section 1557. And some person in a cubicle at HHS has to read it. And the final rule, when they, when they finalize it, has to adequately, adequately address any substantive point that Sally Smith raised in her comment. And if they don't, then the rule can get struck down. So there's, there's this actual true power that everyday citizens have that they can exercise via the notice and comment process, um, which I think is underappreciated. It's, you know, sort of, Mary, you asked, like, there's this whole, it's like this black box, like what's going on in the federal agencies when they do this, but there is this opportunity for engagement and, and some degree of, of transparency, which is not to say that every final rule, you know, will address your concerns to your satisfaction, but they have to read it and they, they have to consider it, which is sort of remarkable. Can I just ask then if is, that's not though the case, if you like send something to your representative or senator, right? Like they don't have to. So are you saying that being ruled by the administrative state would actually be <laughs> more democratic because the bureaucrats actually have to look at look at what you say, whereas your own representative actually doesn't have to look at what Yeah, what do you mean by you they say? have to look at what you read? Like <laughs> there's someone actually looking over their shoulder that knows if they don't read it? It's part of the, the administrative record of the rule. And so if you're, if Ms. Smith in Topeka reads, reads the final rule in section 1557, and she's like, hey, there's nothing in this. So, so when a federal agency issues a regulation, the very end of it, of this massive document is the actual regulation itself. And everything that comes before, like 90, 95% of it is explanations. You know, we received comments saying we should do this. And we received other comments saying we should not do this. And here's why we chose to do this. So if Ms. Smith reads that and says, hey, they didn't take, take into account the thing I said, she can sue and say, you, know, you, you, you arbitrarily and capriciously ignored this very good point I raised. I guess to your point, Aaron, we, the, the flip side is we can vote our representatives out. Right, Whereas right. Yeah. when I was at HHS, I had some professional obligation to read all these comments and a legal obligation, but uh, I, was, I was immune to the wrath of voters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So just to wrap us up though, Dan, I mean, you're kind of alluding to it, but what can, how can the average Catholic be involved? Where can they, what, what can they do to make their voice heard to make that person in that cubicle read what they have to say. Yeah. Um, so obviously engagement in the, in the notice and comment process, uh, you know, that stage of the, the federal rulemaking project is, is the, the most concrete opportunity for engagement. And we're going to set up a web page that will sort of assist people in, in understanding what's being proposed um, and how to submit comments and all these regulations. This is sort of getting a, to be a tired saw for me, but when I get asked, well, what can I do as, as an, you know, an everyday Catholic to support religious freedom? I, I tend to say, go and do the things that religious freedom is for. We're, we're worried about 
our ability to continue to provide healthcare for the needy. You know, go volunteer at a at a, a Catholic health clinic. We're worried about our our ability to to keep running homeless shelters. Go volunteer at a homeless shelter. Show show people why religious freedom is important to us. And it's because we want to be able to do all these things. Mm -hmm. So do do the things. Demonstrating the value of faith in service is, I think, the best argument we can make for the long-term protection for religious freedom. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, that is a good encouragement um, Dan from our director of religious liberty. So thank you so much for that. And thanks for walking us through all this. I feel so much smarter after listening to you. I understand so much better. So thank you for illuminating us today. Uh, sometimes I, I, after going through administrative procedure act arguments, I, I find myself wishing I lived in a sort of anarcho <laughs> yeah, on my own private island, but I appreciate your response. Well, we've been talking with Dan Balzerak of the USCCB about some disconcerting rule changes that we anticipate seeing proposed in the coming weeks and months. Thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. Mm-hmm.